34. Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 through 7. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Well, good morning. What a wonderful period of worship. I want you to know that uh, over the last several months, going back to March, Carla and I have had to quarantine some four different times. Three of those times, uh, we didn't have to go the full extent uh, as being recommended by the CDC. But in each of those occasions, and especially in March, when we came back from Israel and found ourselves having to stay in our home for two weeks, we missed assembling with the body of Christ. Terribly missed it. And to be here this morning and to be among brethren who love the Lord, to hear in a collective way the hymns, To see your love, your concern about things divine has truly uplifted me. So thank you for your attendance. Thank you for your steadfastness and your work in the kingdom of God. It is a joy to be a Christian. No greater blessing in all the world. Think about the joy and the peace that is ours now. And of course, we'll be throughout all eternity as we look forward to the time when we will be with God forever. We will enjoy the bliss of heaven. In preparing for that day when Jesus will come again, we have a clarion call of a message of truth of which we have sung about today about the love of Jesus, about the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary, that in Christ alone our hope is found. I remember quite well the day that I became a Christian, when after coming up out of the watery grave of baptism, I rejoiced, just like I am certain that many of you in this audience are maybe listening online can reflect upon and remember with great joy and vividness the day that you surrendered your will to Jesus, that you obeyed the command to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And by faith then, being buried in that watery grave of baptism, you arose to walk in newness of life. Just as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost some 2,000 years ago, To people who cried out and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They likewise responded to that obedient 
or to that command to be baptized. And the Bible says on the same day there were added unto them, unto the number, about 3,000 souls. That they were praising God. That they had favor with all the people. Or like the Ethiopian who after having heard about Jesus has preached to him from Isaiah chapter 53 by that faithful evangelist. He said, here is water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? And Philip said, except you believe with all your heart, you may. And so they left the chariot, but they both went down into the water. Philip baptized them. And the text says that he came up out of the water and he went on his way rejoicing. Truly, the day of our salvation is a day of rejoicing. But if you are like so many of us, who after having encountered maybe sadness, or friends of ours that have encountered hardship, or we think about the world that we live in and the injustices and the tension and maybe some marital conflict in our home, dysfunctionality that might exist there, or something that has happened to us in a horrific way that has harmed our psyche. We might feel as though that God is far away, that God is distant. I know over the years, as Carla and I have worked with various families in and out of the church, that some have expressed to us that very feeling. God, where are you? God, if I have found favor in your sight, then why has this and this happened? And maybe that is exactly how you feel this morning. You might be here in bodily form, but emotionally, Spiritually, God seems distant from you. I want you to know that you're not alone in those feelings or maybe a periods of doubt, of melancholy, of perhaps questioning where God is. Because if you go back to the Old Testament, and in particular Exodus 33 and 34, you will find a similar example where a very faithful servant of God, a man by the name of Moses, who likewise experienced that feeling of God being distant, of his questioning his own relationship with God, and whether or not he had truly found favor in the sight of God. Do you remember the story leading us up to Exodus 33 and 34? God's people had been in bondage. They had been enslaved to a pagan ruler. They cried out for a deliverer. And God sent Moses. And the mighty hand of God was revealed through Moses and leading them out of their slavery. Crossing over the Red Sea in what Paul described in the book of Corinthians as a type of baptism. They were baptized unto Moses. He says, a wall of water on either side, and there was a cloud over the top. They left behind their slavery, and they came across into a new land with a new covenant, with an opportunity now to look forward to the promised land. 
But in Exodus chapter 33, notice in verse number 1, that the Lord says to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. But notice verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. A little later on in the story, we find that evidently Moses has some questions of his own because while though Moses, the Bible says, God says, that he had found favor in the sight of God, that I know you by name, Moses nevertheless said, God, if that's true, then show me your glory. Maybe that's you this morning. You've come to a point in your life where you have heard others say, well, yes, you you were baptized. You're a part of the kingdom of God, but God knows you. But you've begun to doubt. You have questions. God, if I have found favor, I need to see more. I need to know more. And so what is it that We find in Exodus 33 and 34 that Moses did when God seemed distant. And maybe this morning we can find a few things that we ourselves can find comfort in and even share with others who may be experiencing similar kinds of doubts or frustrations or have questions. I want us to notice that number one this morning, when God seems distant, what we need to do is to make sure that we put the past behind us. Because what we have not made reference to this morning is this, what happened in chapters 31 and 32. Moses had gone up to the mountain to receive the law of God. Remember the first time when God appeared before them, the people were so afraid and and said, Moses, you go up and talk to God. And so he did. And while he lingered and while he received the law of God, Others began to turn the faith of the children of Israel and they crafted this golden calf and they began to fall down and worship it and had a desire to go back to Egypt. And then when God revealed himself as Moses came down from the mountain, they were, of course, exceedingly afraid. They realized that they had sinned, that they had transgressed. And part of the problem then of why God had decided he was not going to go up with them was because of their hard-hearted hearts. Because they had committed this blatant idolatry. Because after all he had done for them, they decided to turn from that and begin to serve an idol. I wonder if sometimes in our own life, if maybe God seems distant to us, that it is because that is exactly what's happened. We've put distance between us and God because of sin in our life. Because of things that we have failed to recognize or to absolutely deal with. We've just sort of put them under the proverbial rug. We've been in a state of denial. 
We don't want to recognize the, the fact that God is distant from us because we've distanced ourselves from Him. Because we have, as the people of God did later on during the period of the divided kingdom, had separated themselves from God because of their sin. Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 2. It wasn't that God's hand was so short that He could not save or His ear heavy that He could not hear them. But He said, your iniquities have separated you from me. It was their transgressions that had done that. God is holy, holy, holy. And we, as Isaiah proclaimed in chapter 6, often are a people of unclean lips, and we dwell among a people of unclean lips. And it is because of our sin that we find ourselves being distant for God. But, you know, God made a means by which we could be sanctified, whereby we could be in fellowship with Him, redeemed, reconciled to Him. By the blood of the Lamb. But when we take ourselves out of that, and when we practice sin, as Paul said to the church at the churches of Galatia in chapter 5, the works of the flesh that are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, sexual immorality, lasciviousness, drunkenness, and sectarianism, division, when we practice those things, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. We have a responsibility to keep ourselves in the love of God so that we can then anticipate the mercy of God, as Jude said in Jude verse 21. None of us are perfect. We all sin. But if we refuse to walk in the light as Christ is in the light, as God is in the light, according to 1 John 1, then we don't have fellowship with God. So sometimes God is distant it is true because we do not repent, because we do not confess our sins. But the Bible says that if we are faithful, or God is faithful, and if we confess our sins, that He is faithful to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. I wonder this morning if maybe God seems distant to some of you or to friends of ours because... We've not really repented. We've become addicted to sin. It's become our taskmaster. It rules us. And we've not experienced the goodness and the mercy of God and faith and trust in Him to turn from that. This is why Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, Nay, I tell you, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And the times of ignorance God winked at, but now he commandeth all men everywhere to repent, to turn to Jesus. Sin is a terrible, terrible, debilitating disease. Not only does it bring about harm to us emotionally, physically, but most importantly, spiritually. God has a means of reconciliation. And in verses 4 through 9, we find exactly what God's people were told to do. He said in verse 4 of Exodus 33 that when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Being separated from God is a terrible thing. We ought to cry over that. And just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. The first step in reuniting with God is to make sure that we put the past behind us. To say, God, I am a sinner in need of salvation. 
God, I'm humbling myself before you and I am saddened over what I have done in the past. I want to make restitution. I want to be right. And so God says then to the children of Israel, put away these things, these ornaments that you have worn. They mourn. No one put on his ornaments for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are stiff necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Well, what were their ornaments? There's a lot of debate and discussion about this. Were they, in fact, maybe celebrating when they should have been showing their remorse and their disdain for what they have done, sort of like putting on sackcloth or uh, showing that they were truly penitent instead of putting on their best garments and saying, well, this is a time of celebration. God says, this is a time of mourning. Maybe... It had something to do with the little amulets that they were wearing, which we know that have been found in various archaeological sites and digs uh, around the country of Israel today. These little beetle-like shaped ornaments that had in the culture of Egypt sort of come to symbolize a sort of safeguard or maybe some sort of little charm that you might wear to ward off the evil spirits and they became very popular in Egyptian culture and again they sort of got brought over to other cultures and have been found in a lot of places were those the things that they were wearing still elements of their Egyptian past that God said you need to put behind you Truly, when we try to hold on to the past, we'll often find ourselves being separated from God. So this morning, we lovingly call you to examine yourself. To see whether or not you're truly in the faith. But maybe this morning, through the means of this lesson, God will turn a mirror on your soul and help you to root out the sin that is in your life that we buried, that we don't want to deal with, that we don't want to acknowledge Don't let God be distant because he doesn't want to be distant from you. But then secondly, this morning, what we see is that once we've examined ourselves, maybe, and we find ourselves in a right relationship with God, maybe we're like Moses and we begin to question and we begin to see all that's happening and we hear even a proclamation and feel as though God uh, isn't going to dwell among us and be among us and, and we're concerned and we're fearful What do we do? When you take a look at verses 7 through 11, what you see next that Moses did is that he went to the tent of meeting. What a beautiful text to think about the practice of Moses and that what happened, God, it seemingly here, had moved the tabernacle outside of the people. And yet now Moses is having to go outside the camp and to go there. But why is he going there? He's going there according to verse Number 11, to speak face to face with God as a man speaks to his friend. God had established the tabernacle under the covenant, the old covenant for this reason. As a means to reconcile himself to his people. As a means of having fellowship with his people. In a beautiful, beautiful story that's revealed throughout scripture you see that man in this perfect pristine environment the garden Eden was cast out in fact driven out eastwardly 
And then God created the tabernacle, a tent of meeting for sinners to come and through the means of the high priest and the sacrifices be reunited with God, to be in fellowship. That particular tent was facing east. Just as they were driven out, Adam and Eve, out of the garden, God says, I am now working out a means for you to be reunited toward me, coming in from the very direction that you went out, communicating to people that God wants to meet face to face. The tent of meeting and the beautiful tabernacle that was established that later became the temple and decorated inside as Solomon reveals in in the book of Chronicles or as revealed in the book of Chronicles and also in in the book of Kings. You see this elaborately uh, decorated inward side of it with all these palm trees and flowers to sort of replicate, as it were, what they had lost. But God was now providing once again as a means of being together with Him. It is at the tent of meeting where we find the significance of sacrifice and we hear the law of God and where they came to see God. I would suggest to you today that whenever you think and feel as though God feels distant to you, as some might be tempted to say, well, if He seems distant to me, then then I'm not really worthy. I shouldn't come to the assembly. Don't think that way. But instead, think of just the opposite. Say, that's where I need to be. Because as you go on to read in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, as the writer there describes the grandeur and the glory of that tabernacle, he said, those things are a symbol. They are a sign of what now is in the church of our Lord. That we are now the tabernacle of God. That we are now the tent of meeting. That this, as God's holy temple, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 of God's people coming together, is where His presence can be found. Is where we see, as it were, the face of Almighty God. What a beautiful, beautiful thing to think about. Of going to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And to know that His presence is here among us. That we hear His sweet name heralded among the saints in the beautiful hymns designed to touch our hearts, to prick our minds, in the partaking of the Lord's Supper as we commune together to remember what Jesus did for us and the sacrifice, the atoning nature of what took place there to appease the wrath of God so that we could be in fellowship with God. How do we see God? God wants very much to join us, to be with us. And where His people are gathered, He's there. There is, in fact, a joy and a contentment and a peace. And sometimes people say, well, how can I know that God is there and what's happening do you know in Acts 17 when Peter I mean when Paul was preaching on Mars Hill to a pagan world about the God that they were ignorantly worship worshiping and looking for him in sort of a an image he says now look God doesn't in this age dwell in temples made with hands as though he needed anything 
But instead, he says, we are the offspring of God. And that he, now listen to it, is not far from any one of us. For it is in him that we live and move and have our very being. In other words, as children of God, as the creation of God, when we do the things of God, it is a way of saying that God is near, that he's not far. Let me tell you, God is not far. He is near here in this congregation. He is among you. And I have seen it in the smiles and in the expressions of love and joy and the acts of kindness. And whenever we're sick, because I've heard people say, well, where's God in my sickness or where's God in my problems? And then they might receive a card in the mail. They might receive food from a neighbor. Some member of the church comes along and, and helps them make repairs on their home or prays with them. I'm telling you, that is an example of God being near to you. And sometimes we don't see it and he seems rather distant, but what we need to do is to open our eyes in those situations and understand he is not far off. God is near. Then as we think about being distant from God and that feeling and perhaps that, that uh, uh, doubt that may creep up into our hearts of what we need to do when God seems distant, not only do we need to repent to make sure that there's no sin that we're practicing in our life, but then number two, we need to go to the tent of meeting. And then number three, this, I want you to notice, to me what is really the essence of what's going to keep us going and excited and feeling near to the heart of God is that we need to look for the glory of God. Take a look at verse 13. In verse 13 of Exodus 33, Moses said to the Lord, Now, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. In other words, God said, I'm not going to go with you. Now, what I want you to do is to go on up and to lead. And Moses says, well, God, uh, how, who's going to help me here? What's going to happen? You have said, I, I know you by name. And that I found favor in your sight. But Moses still had some questions. You ever felt that way? You read in the word of God that you're saved, that you were baptized, that you're part of the kingdom of God. But then maybe you began to question and you want more. I understand that. Because Moses in verse number 13 says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But then Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Or now shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and in your people? And so, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight. And Moses said again, verse 18, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy in whom I will show mercy. Can you see the, the marvelous sort of dialogue going on here? Moses, you found favor in my sight. I know you by name. Well, God, if that's true, show me your glory. All right, Moses, 
I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to have to take you to a special place up on the mountain. And as I pass by in all my glory, I will hide you, as it were, in the cleft of the rock. Moses was only allowed to see the tail end of the glory of God. Now, there are two things this morning that all of us need to remember and always see when we think about feeling distant from God. And that is, number one, in regard to the glory of God, what that Shekinah glory, that brightness, the effulgence, the radiance that emanated from the very nature and the essence of God. Sort of like looking at the sun that is so powerful and so great you can't see it. But yet, even if you turn from it, you're going to feel the effects of it. It is in ways powerful imagery to help us see the holiness, the sanctified nature of God. That He is sinless, that He is powerful, that He is great, that He is majestic, that He is all righteous. And so this light that is so brilliant, that is not the God Himself, it's sort of what comes from God is so bright that Moses can't see it. He sees it for just a moment. He can't see the face of God and live, but he sees the glory of God. And remember what happens? He comes down and he's shining so brilliantly that people are afraid and they say, Moses, put a veil over your face. He had been in the presence of God and it changed him. I tell you, that's what needs to happen to us whenever we feel distant from God. We need to get into the presence of God because when we do, it will change us. But it's not just seeing in our mind's eye this beautiful imagery because really the glory of God is not only wrapped up in that brilliance. It is what was proclaimed when God showed him his glory. And that's found in Exodus 34. Turn over now to the next chapter because we have a great, wonderful, beautiful passage here that ought to inspire us and encourage us. It is a window into the very nature of who God is. So that when in verse 5 of Exodus 34, the Bible says the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful, that's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In that one passage, there is, in such a beautiful and powerful way, a message that says, here is what God is all about. Here is the message even of the cross of Christ that says on the one hand, yes, God will not clear the guilty. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very promising and encouraging until we think about this. Of all the people that have committed sin, terrible things, heinous crimes in our world, the rapist, the murderer, those who rob and steal and pillage. And we say, God, I want justice for those people. God, it's not right for them to to not have to be punished or to just go on and live any way that they want to live. We even recognize that in our own world, don't we? If a judge in our community refused to punish criminals, wrongdoing, we would say, where's the justice? Then we even think about 
God being angry, and while we at first say, well, you know, is God angry? Why is he angry? And let me tell you, as a human being, we can relate to it, right? I mean, let's say that after this assembly, we, we go outside and, and one of our elderly, sweet ladies of the congregation who may be on a walk or on a cane, she's trying to make her way out to the car, and somebody from the neighborhood sees her, he jumps out of the car, he runs over and he pushes her down on the ground, and her face hits across the pavement, he takes her purse, he whacks her across the head, and blood profusely comes from her body, and he runs off, and you see the whole incident, do you not think there's going to be some indignation and wrath and anger within you? Why? Because he has hurt someone you love. But God can't be angry about the things that are happening every day to the people He loves. Every one of us. When He sees the things that we're doing to others and what we do to ourselves to harm those who are made in His image. Okay, John, I, I understand that now. God is angry and He's got to punish wrongdoing. But let him just punish the murderer. Let him just punish uh, you know, those who steal and rob. And then I remember, oh, yes, maybe I haven't murdered somebody, but maybe I've committed character assassination. Maybe I haven't broken into someone's home and stole their valuables, but I've robbed them of their dignity by the things I said to them and the way that I treated them. And I hurt them and I maimed them. Do you think God is upset about that? He wouldn't be a righteous God if He wasn't. People have been hurt. But in this very same verse, and almost you can hear it in the same breath, not only do we hear of the justice of God that's going to punish wrongdoing, that's angry about sin, God not only hates sin, but He loves the sinner. And He not only wants to be just, but He wants to be the justifier of sinners. That God is a God of mercy, a God of love, that He is a God that is full of compassion, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That word mercy in verse number 6 in so many ways reveals to us this marvelous God that is crying out to us saying, I don't want to be distant. I'm not distant. I'm here. Don't turn away from me. Come to me. Because I have made possible a means of salvation. I have offered up myself. I have given my son to receive your stripes. To satisfy the demands of the law. To appease my wrath. So that I can declare the world that I am just and the justifier of men. That I follow the law. That I did indeed punish wrongdoing. But instead of punishing the sinner, I am punishing myself. So that you, the sinner, can be saved. That's the length at which God will go to reconcile sinful people unto Himself. I often think about this in terms of marriages and how that maybe a husband and wife are at odds with one another. We want to see the love of God. 
I think of this when maybe here is a man who has offended his wife. He has sinned against her. What would we expect? For him to make the offering, right? For him to make restitution and to make it right. And we would expect that. But in the beautiful story about God, and when we get to thinking that God seems distant, what we need to remember is that God, as the marvelous and wonderful, redemptive, redeeming God that He is, says, I'm going to be the one that makes the gift. Even though you've sinned them against me, I'm going to be the one that offers the gift. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. The wonderful story of the cross and the mercy of God as revealed and even in wonderful parables like the one in Luke chapter 10 of the Good Samaritan. Are we fine? A man who had fallen among thieves, he was robbed of his possessions and even of his dignity, and he lay there naked, wounded, left for dead, abandoned and passed by by others that should have stopped. And even maybe some that said, well, I can't be near a dead body and following that element of the law. And yet God would supersede the demands of the law. And what happened? This good Samaritan comes along. He sees the man in his wretched condition. He dismounts from that beast that he was on. And he goes down and he binds up his wounds and he carries him. And he takes him to the inn and he pays for him to convalesce, to be better. When I think of Luke chapter 10 and the story of the Good Samaritan, I like to think of God being the Good Samaritan. That I'm the one down there on the ground, left for dead, and wondering, does anybody care? And as other people pass by, God, as it were, has been shouting through a large megaphone throughout the Gospel message, I care, I love you, I want you. I've dismounted from heaven, as it were, and I have came down to the, come down to this earth to minister, to bind up your wounds, to pay the debt. That's the beautiful picture of the God that we serve that we need to always keep in mind that says, I'm looking down the road waiting for my prodigal son to come home. Finally, as we consider times in which we feel distance from the glory of God, we need to not only look for the glory of God, but we then need to get busy working diligently to build the tabernacle of God. One of the greatest things that we can do whenever we start to feel sort of like isolated or we feel as though uh, that maybe I'm just not connected or, or that I don't feel good spiritually. You ever have those sort of feelings that overcome you or, or you know, that sort of permeate your mind? What I see in the chapters that follow is a people that got busy building this marvelous tabernacle of giving of their means so that all that needed to be done could be done. And when they had given themselves to the work and they used everyone's talents in working on the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 says that then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. Now listen, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and throughout all their journeys... 
Whenever the cloud was taken up from wherever the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out and that cloud would go with them. It was a reminder that when they made restitution, when they sought the glory of God, when they did go to the tent of meeting and see the purpose and the value of it, that God went with them. It's a marvelous end to a very, very uh, interesting story. And what I'm telling you today is this. If you want God to be near you, then get busy doing the work of God. James chapter 1, verses 25 and following, as James speaks to us about what true faith is, especially in times of trials and challenges, he said, this man is going to be blessed in his deed. What man? Not the man that just simply hears and goes on his way and forgets what manner of man he was, but he who does the will of God. Blessed is the one who just doesn't hear, but also does. This man shall be blessed in his work. Pure religion and undefiled before God, he goes on to say, is this. That we visit the fatherless and the widows in their afflictions, and we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Oh, busying ourselves in the work of God does so much. To strengthen our heart. To fill us with peace and joy. In Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul spoke about the grace of God, he said, it's by grace that you are saved, through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, but rather what? In other words, it's not that we try to earn our way to heaven, but rather when we, by faith, submit to the will of Jesus, that God then works on us. And the way that we can show to others His handiwork is through our good works. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And what it does is send a message throughout the world to our friends, our neighbors, our family members that God is working, that He's not far off. But through our hands and through the things we do in taking food to the hungry and praying for those who are distraught, who are mourning, to study the Word of God with people, to just give an encouraging phone call, a card, be involved in various aspects of benevolence, it should be a declaration to the world that God loves His creation. And when we do that and we busy ourselves in that, you will experience a joy and a peace that passes all understanding. You will come to know, have knowledge of the fact that God is near. And this morning as we think about maybe some in this audience or other places where maybe you're thinking that God is far away, He's not. As I think about the beauty and the joy of those who are Christians and the fellowship that we have as His tabernacle. He's alive and He's well. Can we help you in some way this morning? Baptize you into Christ. Restore you to your first love. Whatever your needs are, need is this morning, will you make it known as together we stand?
and as we sing.